Good morning. My name is Chris Genders. I am the youth pastor for the church. Uh, Bill White, our lead pastor, got back from vacation on Friday. Um, just ignore what's happening behind me. <clears throat> um, got back from vacation on Friday and taught a married life life. Can we bring up house lights um, a little bit? Is that okay? Just, I'd, I'd like to see you guys. There we go. Thank you. Um, we're uh, we're going to feel a little bit more like a, a classroom uh, this morning than uh, perhaps a sermon. Um, we're going to go through in about 35 minutes what could be about four semesters in seminary. Um, and uh, so we're, we're going to go through this hopefully as, as quickly and as thoroughly as possible and hopefully not as quickly as some of the cars in Daytona 500 um, and we won't wreck and destroy this whole thing tremendously. But um, we are, uh, we're in a thing called the story. If you've been with us, uh, you know that we've got this book that we're going through and uh, we're, we've been 21 weeks in the Old Testament. Uh, 21 weeks. That's a long time in the Old Testament. And uh, we're on week 22, jumping into the New Testament. And I know that many of you are very excited about that. Um, But let's just kind of build here as we go. I want to visually illustrate some things as I teach today. We've got a timeline here that we've been working through. And we are about here. Uh, We've got Genesis to Revelation. Uh, 31 chapters in this story. Um, we started here 21 weeks ago. We're going to end there um, a little bit after Easter. And today we're right here. We're making this jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And there was much rejoicing, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. We're, we're excited about that because we don't really know what to do with the Old Testament. Um, there's just some strange things in the Old Testament. Um, we, we look at it, we read it, and we're like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem very relevant to my life. New Testament, that makes, that makes a lot more sense. And, and I get it. I really do. I mean, if you, if you, let's just look at the Old Testament. Um, here we've got genocide, fratricide, incest, rape. Uh, we've got commandments to kill witches, to stone people to death. We've got prophets that do some really kind of funky things um, in the name of God. And we don't really know quite what to do with that, especially when we contrast over here and we've got love, joy, peace. And we're like, we're a little more comfortable uh, in the New Testament, right? Um, it's a little more relevant to our lives today. Um, we, we look at the Old Testament and we think God is a God of anger, wrath. We're like, wow. What do we do with that God? And over here, we've got a God who forgives. We're a little more comfortable with that. We like that part of it. Um, But here's the reality. This is all one big story. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. You can't understand and appreciate what the Old Testament talks about until you understand the New Testament. It's all connected. It's all one big story. Um, I've got an illustration here. Uh, this is a, a circle diagram. You see up in the top, I know you can't read it, but um, just look at the lines. The top and the blue is Genesis. We go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way around um, to Malachi. And then we start with Matthew in the red over here on the left side, uh, about 9 o'clock, maybe 8.30. And uh, we rotate back up to, to noon. The lines go from the New Testament to the Old Testament. And what the lines are is anytime there's a direct reference to a verse or to a story in the Old Testament... And so you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I mean, they're just flooded with that. We go into Acts, we go into Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all that. And we look at Hebrews. 
um, the upper, maybe what, like 1030, Hebrews, all the lines come out of that. And then Revelation at the top. Wow. If you want to understand the New Testament, you got to understand this. You got to look at the Old Testament. And that's why we spent 21 weeks looking at the Old Testament so that you can understand what the New Testament is all about. Uh, See, I think maybe a, a better way to put it, and theologians have talked about this for a long time, maybe a better way to put it than rather than the Old Testament is part one and part two. Or perhaps if you're into theater, act one, act two. Because then we lose the, the nomenclature of old, because anything old is irrelevant. It's outdated. We don't know what to do with it. We, we just throw it away. But in reality, it's all one big story. Part one, which you have to understand, and part two. If you're a builder, think foundation that you have to build before you put the house on it, right? Um, we understand that, that part of it. And I need you to begin to understand that this is what God is asking us to do. Before we make this jump into the New Testament, some of you are all excited. You're coming to church this morning. You're like, yes, we're going to go to the New Testament. We've 20 minutes to the Old Testament, and I'm going back to the Old. Sorry. But we've been talking about this thing called the upper story and the lower story. And there's an upper story here. God wants to dwell with his people. And we have these lower stories that we've been talking about, and uh, there's stories that kind of fill in and tell more about that. It's like when my family went to, to vacation last year in South Dakota. Uh, we could tell people that we went to vacation, right? We went to South Dakota on vacation. That's a good story. That's the upper story. The lower story is we, we drove out there rather than flew, so that was interesting with two small children. Um, we stopped at the Badlands. We went to Mount Rushmore. Uh, we, we had a wedding that we attended that I performed out there. Um, all of these smaller sub-stories that tell the bigger picture of our vacation are the lower stories. And so here uh, we have some lower stories that, that kind of flesh out this whole idea of God wants to dwell with his people. If we come to Genesis, I'm not an artist, but what is that? A tree. Exactly. And we have the Garden of Eden, and God is, is walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we go into uh, the time in the wilderness. Is that next? Yes. Sorry. Here, look at my notes. We go into the time of wilderness. What does that look like? A tent. In the Old Testament, what would we call that? The tabernacle. Exactly. Um, and then we have, and this is where I get really challenged. What, what would you call that? crown all right so we've got the nation of israel and and they're to represent god to the to the rest of the world and god wants to dwell with his people through that and eventually we see that solomon builds the temple exactly and god actually resides in the temple i um, mean the old testament is what we've learned and then we come into this period um where we're getting ready to go into the new testament but we have this interesting time 400 years of silence uh, we've got all this story of God's people developing throughout history. And then we've got the prophets that are speaking continuously and, and saying, hey, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. And then we have this period between the, in, the Testaments, we call it the intertestamental period, where it's 400 years where God is silent. And you've got to wonder, as the nation of Israel, are they sitting here going, where, where, where's God? Where is God in all of this? And then all of a sudden, we hear this guy named John. John is, is a little interesting. Uh, he lives out in the desert. He wears camel hair and he eats locusts and honey and does some pretty strange things and makes people start to wonder about John and maybe is he like the prophets of old? 
And John recognizes his job is to prepare the way for the one who's coming. And John points forward to Jesus. And we know the story of Jesus, and that's the chapter we're on, week 22. Uh, it's all about the birth of Jesus. We know the story of Jesus from Christmas, right? Um, the Roman government calls for a census. Mary and Joseph travel back to Bethlehem because that's where they're from. Uh, she's with child. Um, she gives birth to Jesus in a manger because there's no room for them in the end. And, and then we've got a star. And So I'll put the little star here. Beautiful little star, right? Um, we got the star here, and the wise men see it, and there's an angelic concert for the shepherds out in the wilderness, and, and then Jesus has arrived on the scene. We could just end it there. Done. Chapter 22. But there's a little more to this story. Jesus grows. He becomes a man. We know that eventually, he ends up on the cross. Right? He dies for our sins. But I want to tell you this morning, and, I, and this, is where, this is where the direction I'm going this morning is maybe a little bit different than you had expected. Because I think when most of us think about Jesus, we think about those 33 years. But there's a whole lot more to Jesus than those 33 years. So let's take a look at how the gospel writers tell us about Jesus' birth and his arrival. Um, if, if You don't have to turn your Bibles, but uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books in the New Testament, they're the, what's called the Gospels, and they tell us about Jesus' life. Um, we've got four kind of different accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, the first one, he starts with this really interesting genealogy, right? If you've read Matthew and, and he goes into so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and, and we've got interesting people here, and then boop, poof, there's Jesus. And then the reason that Matthew wrote his gospel, you have to understand why he wrote his gospel to appreciate the genealogy. He wrote his gospel to Jewish people to explain that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, we've got an entire uh, centuries-long history here, 21 chapters in the story, 21 chapters saying Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And Matthew, Jesus arrives on scene as Messiah, and Matthew says, hey guys, you got to understand, he's, he's it. He's the real deal. And, and here's his birth record, and that was important in that generation, in that, in that culture. Uh, we go to Mark. Mark, interestingly, doesn't even talk about Jesus' birth. He just goes right to Jesus' baptism. That's where he starts. We see John the Baptist, and, and then Jesus getting baptized. Uh, and you've got to wonder, why didn't Mark even include the baptism, or include his birth? Well, Mark's purpose for writing was to prepare people for the suffering that they were going to experience. And the birth of Jesus wasn't really about suffering. And then we get to Luke, and... Luke provides us with the Christmas story that we all know and love and, and the, and the angelic accounts and the star and the wise men and the shepherds and, and, the, and the manger and all that. And we're very familiar with that story. And then we get to John, and John, John's like a poet. I love John. Uh, John has this, this seemingly poet, poetic reference to Jesus' birth, uh, which you've got here up on the screen. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I want to I buy John's poetry book because this is just beautiful. I love this. And it's also very confusing. Because what in the world is he talking about? We, we understand it's, it's kind of this reference to Jesus because he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And by the way, our upper story here is that God wants to dwell with his people. And so we suddenly see that Jesus' birth is fitting that upper story. But what exactly is John talking about? Well, to understand it, we've got to back up a little bit and go to John chapter 1, uh, just a few verses prior to that. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. 
what? What is John saying? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. And this is really what the rest of this morning is about. Uh, the, the word word there in Greek is the word logos. And it was a fairly common term in the Greek language. And it just simply meant the written or spoken word. But it began to take on a different meaning with the philosophers and with the gospel writers, particularly John. Um, the first guy that, that took it to a whole new level uh, was this Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And he used it around 600 B.C. to mean this, the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. A little, more, a little deeper than, than simply a spoken or written word. But it's the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. In John, and this is straight from a, a um, commentary, so forgive me for this. Um, in John, Logos denotes the essential word of God, Jesus Christ. The personal wisdom and power in union with God. His minister in creation and government of the universe. The cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical. Which for the procurement of man's salvation put on human nature in the person of Jesus the Messiah. The second person in the Godhead. And again I say, What? Well, I like how Frank Stagg, the theologian, puts it. He says, The Logos is God active in creation, in revelation, and redemption. It's God actively involved in creation, in revelation, revealing who He is to the world, and in redemption, redeeming the world back to Him. I began to understand that a little bit better. And so from this we get this idea that word for John equals Jesus. When you read in John 1 and you see the word word capitalized, John's referring to Jesus. And so, so let's, let's just reread John 1, but substituting in Jesus for word. And here's what it reads. In the beginning was Jesus. Where have we heard those words before? In the beginning. Genesis. And Jesus was with God in the beginning. And Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. I think he wanted to say it again, just in case we missed it. (laughs) Through Jesus, all things were made. What? Wait a minute. Jesus? God made the world and everything through Jesus? Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. I think our understanding of Jesus maybe needs to expand a little beyond 33 years. Beyond his birth and his death and his resurrection. And so this morning, for the rest of my time, I want to take you through uh, what Leonard Sweet calls a theography of Jesus. We've heard the term biography. It's the story of a human. A theography is the story of a God. And so we're, we're just going to go through some things here um, on the theography of Jesus. And I should have said this earlier. For all you note-takers out there, you're freaking out because there wasn't any notes uh, in the bulletin. It's because I just want you to listen, okay, this morning. Um, I've got some of you out there like, <laughs> like, yep, I've been taking notes like crazy out here. I should have told you this earlier. Um, I've got all of my notes and all of my scripture references for you at the Welcome Center um, as you leave here this morning, because I just want you to listen. I want you to, to kind of contemplate what I'm saying here this morning. And I want you to go home and I want you to study this. To just, I mean, because I'm human, right? I, I can make a wrong statement here. Any one of us as pastors could. And so we appreciate the fact that you guys go and you check what we say, um, that you verify what we say. And so we always want to give you the scriptures um, to do that. And so this morning, um, you've got all the notes here as you leave here this morning. So theography of Jesus. 
which means we're going to look at, at his existence. And it goes beyond the moment he was born and after the time that he died. And for some of you, this is brand new information. Um, I remember uh, I didn't grow up in the church, so in, in college I encountered this whole idea that Jesus existed before he was born. And I went, what? How is that possible? Nothing exists before, no, no human being exists before he was born. Like, I don't understand all that. And then I learned some other things, and I was like, wait, what? And so this morning, some of you may be out there, you may be having a, a what moment this morning. And that's why I want you to give, give you the scriptures uh, so you can go study it, um, so you can see that what I'm saying is, is I believe, biblically accurate. <clears throat> so here's our first statement as we look at the theography of Jesus. Jesus existed before time began. And I'm going to use, I mean, if you'll forgive me for this, it's just the best symbol that I've got, but I'm going to use the cross to represent Jesus um, on our timeline here. And so we've got Jesus here existing before time began. Okay? Uh, John, we saw that verse already, uh, says John 1, 1 and 2. Go ahead and bring that up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Um, See, for us to understand the fact that Jesus existed before he was born, we have to understand that God exists in what's called a trinity, um, three persons in one being. Uh, We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they exist in this, uh, this intimate, intricate dance of relationship between the three of them. Um, all three are God, but all three have unique uh, roles and identities um, in that Godhead. Um, they're not one and the same, and yet they are. And it, it's really difficult for us to wrap our mind around this because uh, we're, we're finite, natural beings trying to understand an infinite, supernatural being. It's like an ant trying to understand a human being right? It's just not going to happen. The ant can't really comprehend what it's like to be a human being. We can't truly wrap our mind around God. And yet we try. We use things like, like uh, water. Um, maybe you've heard this, this explanation of water before. Uh, water exists as a solid, a gas, and a liquid. But here's the problem with that. The same molecule cannot exist as all three at the same time. It can only exist as one at a time. It can be a solid that melts to a liquid that can vaporize to a gas. But it can exist as a solid liquid and a gas at the same time. And so many of you have heard the water illustration for the Trinity, and I'm here to tell you that it's actually a heretical teaching. Um, it's, it's a view, I'm, I'm serious. Um, it's a view called modalism, which says that God can only exist in one form. Is that squeaky out there? It's awful squeaky up here. Um, It says God can only exist in one form at a time. The term here is modalism. Um, That God can only exist in one mode. So in the Old Testament, modalism would say that that God exists as God the Father. In the New Testament, God arrives on the scene as as God the Son. And then God the Son um, is resurrected and God the Holy Spirit comes into being. But that's the, the problem with that is that's not biblical teaching. And all we have to do is find one place that refutes that, and there's one place that we see all three interacting together at the same time simultaneously, and that's Jesus' baptism. Jesus is being baptized. God the Father speaks, says, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And the Holy Spirit descends in the appearance of a dove. And so we have one moment in Scripture, and there's others, but we have one definitive moment in Scripture where all three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, exist simultaneously interact with each other. And so this idea of modalism, we've got to get rid of. All right? We can't hold on to that. 
Uh, some of you have heard the, the illustration of the egg, uh, that the egg has three parts, the shell, the yolk, and the white gucky stuff in the middle, right? Um, the problem with that is they're not the same. It's three different materials. Yes, it's three in one. Three parts make up the egg. And that's kind of close to Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's not really quite true. And there, there's really no perfect illustration uh, to do this. But I've stumbled upon one that I think is genius. Um, and this is, this, I'm, I'm serious. Um, I haven't seen it in any commentaries, any theologian talk about it other than CE genders. Um, this guy talks about it all the time. <laughs> Neapolitan ice cream. Right? It's all ice cream. And yet in three different flavors. You've got chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. All existing simultaneously is all the same substance, and yet three very different flavors. I think this is genius. I'm going to write a book um, on this. <clears throat> but anyway, so... <laughs> sorry, I'm having fun there. Um, Jesus existed before he was born. Uh, Jesus, second point, was involved in the creation process. And so we see here in Genesis... That Jesus is involved. And we're going, what? How does that make sense? Uh, Colossians 1, 15 and 17 through 17 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I don't understand how it worked. I don't understand how it, how it still works. But Jesus is involved in the creation process. What does scripture tell us? How did God create the world? What does he say? Somebody said it here. He spoke it into existence. He logos it into existence. The word Jesus, somehow, again, an ant trying to understand a human, Jesus is somehow the creative force in creation. God the Father spoke, Jesus creates. I don't understand how it works, but it's what we see in Scripture. Um, Now, this is one um, where maybe I'm going to start to lose some of you, and I hope I don't. But Jesus appears numerous times in the Old Testament. Jesus appears in the Old Testament before he was born numerous times. Now we read throughout the Old Testament, we see that God interacted with his people and God spoke to his people. And at times we, we see it's, it's God's voice that we hear. And at other times it's, it's an angel. Other times we see this, this phrase, an angel of the Lord. Um, other times we see God appeared and spoke. And other times it's dreams. And other times it's through inanimate objects. But all throughout the Old Testament, God is sitting there um, talking to people and, and physically appearing at different times. Whenever God appears in a physical form, It is Jesus. It is not God the Father. It is not God the Holy Spirit. John 6 tells us that no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, and that's Jesus. Only he has seen the Father. Whenever God appears in the Old Testament in physical form, and this is different than an angel communicating a message, but whenever God appears in the Old Testament in physical form, whether it's a human or it's an inanimate object, and speaks to people, it is Jesus. Um, theologians have a word for this called a Christophany. It's a physical manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament period, often but not always in human form. And so let's just walk through some of these real quick. In Genesis, we see that not only was Jesus involved in the creation process, but Jesus walked with Adam and Eve. Scripture says that God walked in the garden 
and Adam and Eve hid from them because they were afraid of him. Why do you hide from something that's not there? Why, how, how, do, how do you get this idea that, that God is walking through a garden without a physical form of some sort? And so theologians believe that this is actually Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, appearing in physical form and walking with Adam and Eve. Abraham. Abraham is called to, to leave his family, leave his people. An angel of the Lord appears to him and speaks to him. The angel of the Lord there is a, a reference to Jesus, the second person in the Trinity. Uh, this is just amazing. Uh, J- Abraham. Um, God appears to him and says, you're going to be with child, even though you're really, really old and you're going to have a child. God appeared in physical form and spoke to Abraham about his children. That's Jesus. Uh, Jesus appears in Genesis 18 and shares a meal with him. Jesus stops Isaac or stops him from sacrificing his son Isaac over and over and over. Abraham encounters the physical God, which is the second person of the Trinity, which is Jesus. Jacob. Jacob has a dream one day uh, in Genesis 28. And in that dream, God speaks to him. And he sees a stairway to heaven. Great guitar riff. Um, sees a stairway to heaven. And God speaks to him in physical form. And that's Jesus. Here's one. What sport does Jesus love? Wrestling. Jacob wrestles with God at the brook of Jabbok. God appears in physical form and wrestles with a human being. God the Father never appears in physical form. It's only Jesus who shows up, the second person in Trinity who shows up in physical form. Some of you are sitting here going, dude, you are a false teacher, a heretic, and I'm never coming back to this church. And I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Take the scriptures, study them, go in depth. Um, like I said, I've got four semesters of seminary here that I'm unpacking in 35 minutes. Um, Moses. Where's the time when we see God appear in a physical form, not as a human, but speaks to Moses? In the burning bush. God appears in physical form, not as a human, and speaks through fire, through a burning bush, to a human being. Moses goes into the tent of meeting, encounters God, and says face to face, as friends, man to man. That's Jesus. Moses and Aaron and the elders get called up to the mountain, And they see God's feet. Exodus 24. And they see God's feet. No one has seen the Father. No one has seen the Spirit. It's only Jesus that we see. Pillar of fire. Pillar of cloud. Leads the Israelites through the wilderness. God speaks to them through the inanimate object. That's Jesus. One more, and this one was just a few weeks ago as we studied it in church and with the kids. There's a story of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get thrown into a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the king. They wouldn't dishonor their God. And the king looks in there and he says, didn't we throw three people in there? So why do I see four and one looks like the son of a God? It's a Jesus. In the fire, in the furnace, protecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Time after time after time after time, we see Jesus appearing in the flesh in the Old Testament as a physical being of some sort. Over and over and over. And these are just a few of the, the more commonly identified ones. 
Jesus existed before he was born. He was involved in the creation process. Jesus appears physically in the Old Testament all before Jesus becomes flesh. But that's the next part of Jesus' story. In John chapter 1, verse 14, God became flesh. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Um, another verse that I love is Philippians 2, um, 5 through 11. It's just six verses. And it's an early church hymn, um, and it's called the Kenosis passage. Kenosis is Greek for empty, uh, to empty yourself. And it tells, it's an, it's an early song that the church would sing, and it tells of God and Jesus emptying himself of all the divine attributes, of all the privileges and powers of sitting in the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, emptying himself and becoming a man. He left all of that and came down and joined this mess that we live in. Jesus dies for our sins. Colossians 1, 21 and 23. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But God, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus... knew that this was necessary. To accomplish that. And without understanding the Old Testament, we don't fully appreciate what Jesus did for us. Without understanding that the Old Testament law that we get so bogged down in and is so confusing, the, the main reason that existed, Romans tells us, as Paul tells us in Romans, was to point out our sin our need for a Savior. In the Old Testament, we had this sacrificial system where uh, once a year a, a lamb was sacrificed and then the sins of the nation of Israel were, were placed kind of um, metaphorically or symbolically um, on that lamb and then was slaughtered. And that restored the nation of Israel to God for another year. Without understanding this Old Testament the need for a Savior, and why that Savior had to be sinless, and why that Savior had to die for us. Without understanding all of this, we can't appreciate these 33 years of Jesus' life. But Jesus' story doesn't end there. His theography doesn't stop with his death. Because we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And this is where some of you are going to go, again, this guy's off his rocker. But I'm just showing you what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 15. says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Uh, scripture seems to indicate that those who follow Christ will rise from the dead and be given a new body, a new spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say this, that, that um, we're sown perishable, we're raised imperishable. We're sown physical, we're raised spiritual. And if you want to know what our spiritual, supernatural bodies are going to look like, and I'm just, again, teaching you what Scripture says. If you want to know what that's going to be like, look at Jesus. 
Because what Jesus, how he appeared after his resurrection is what scripture says we will appear as. What did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? He walked with his friends. He ate with them. He interacted with them. They recognized who he was. They traveled together. There's this idea that, that there is more to our life, our, our life after life, than floating around in heaven in this ethereal, spiritual entity, whatever we want to call that. Most of us, for what we understand about heaven and hell and the post-life, uh, comes actually from the philosopher Plato than Scripture. And we need to actually study Scripture to discover what life after life is going to look like. And actually, one uh, theologian writes life after life after life, and that's a whole other sermon that's about four semesters of seminary as well. But what Jesus became post-resurrection is what Scripture says we will become. He was the first one. We'll follow after him for all of us who know Christ. But we're not done. Because in the story of Jesus... We see that Jesus has another role that he's going to fill. Jesus is coming back as a conquering king. We need to lose the image of Jesus as surfer Jesus, holding a child on his lap and petting a lamb next to him. It's not the Jesus that's coming back. The scripture says that Jesus is going to come back like this in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God, Logos of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet most of us, when we think about Jesus, we think Jesus is our friend. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my pal. Jesus and I, we got, we got an understanding, an agreement about our life. I've heard that from many people. And they think Jesus, when he comes back, is, is going to be the same Jesus that we saw here. Love, joy, peace, forgiveness. Sit on my lap. Tell me what you want for Christmas. It's not that Jesus is coming back. Jesus coming back is judge. A little bit different picture of Jesus. But Jesus' story doesn't end there either. Because there's one more picture of Jesus that we see in his theography. We see in the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus is both the temple and the source of light in the new Jerusalem. And I don't know exactly what this looks like. Again, we're ants trying to understand human beings. But it it seems like Scripture says that there's going to be a physical residence that we live in, in our resurrected bodies. And that Jesus is going to be the temple. There's no need for a temple because Jesus is fully present. The dwelling place of God will be with his people. And that there's no need for a temple, a special place to go to worship Jesus, because Jesus is there. It says there's no need for a sun or a moon in Revelation, because Jesus is the light. 
Revelation 21. It says, And I see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. You see, when I look at this, Jesus in Revelation and Jesus post-Revelation, and I look at this timeline, What do you see more of than everything else? I see Jesus. I mean, he's there before the world began. He's there after the world ends. In the creation, all through the Old Testament, he's, he's the pivotal point. He's the turning point of the entire story of God. He's what the New Testament writers are spending all their time telling people about. He's the story of Revelation. He's the story after Revelation. It's all about Jesus. And my goal this morning in telling you all this is twofold. Number one, to give you a more biblical understanding of Jesus and widen your your understanding of who he is. Full scope, the full theography of Jesus. But then also ask you this question. If Jesus Christ was willing to give up, Philippians 2, give up being in the presence of his Father, give up all the divine attributes, to give up everything that he had access to God as, as God the second person, to become a baby, to become a young man who grows, to become a homeless, poor, itinerant preacher who lives off the welfare of other people and then one day surrenders himself to Rome, experience the most gruesome death known to mankind. To take the sins of the world, of our sins, on His back, on the cross. To conquer death. If Jesus was willing to give all of that up, to surrender everything, and we're called to be like Jesus, how far have you gone in your surrender? Are there things that you're holding on to that you're saying, God, I got this. God, I'm, I'm good here. You can have all of this part of my life, but you can't have this. This is too precious to me. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your relationships. But is there anything that you're clutching, holding on tight to, and saying, God, I can't give this up? Because we know that in his humanity, Jesus knelt in the garden knowing what was going to happen, we see him say to God, God, if there is any other way than for me to go on the cross and die this brutal death, if there's any other way we can make this whole restoration of mankind to you, if there's any other way we can make that happen, God, would you, would you just help me make that? And then he says, yet not my will be done, but yours. Is there any area in your life where you're still claiming the right to control, that you haven't surrendered yet. Because if Jesus is our model, and everything about, everything, is Jesus, then we're called to be like him. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, 
go to greatoakcc.org.